name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hi there everyone and wow, have we got one amazing guest speaker today. Talking back with us today is Mr. Chris Corbin himself. Mr. Analook, okay, how are you doing Chris? Are you well? I'm well, very well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and go and just explain to everybody, uh, which part of the world are you in at the moment? Are you home in Missouri or are you somewhere else? I'm actually in Missouri, USA. I'm Australian, but I live in Missouri. Well, we're talking before we started about how you've got very keen interest in ornithology. And uh, I bet most people in Western Europe probably don't know exactly where Missouri is. But is it any good for sea watching there, Chris? Can you see many seabirds in Missouri? <laughs> no, I got into birding when I was really young and I just love it, but I be did become a seabird fanatic and Missouri is not the place for that. <laughs> just two days ago, they had a storm petrol in you. In Missouri, because of the cyclone in the Gulf, you know, a huge vent. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, so, anybody that's listening to this, uh, Missouri, if you don't know, uh, Google it. Uh, Chris assures me it's pretty much smack bang in the middle of the United States, as far away from any coast that you could probably get on the planet, I would imagine, <laughs> probably. So Chris, I want to just ask you a little bit about your past and, you know, you've already mentioned that you started off in Australia. So how, how, did, how did you end up in Missouri from Australia? How, how did you end up in the States? How did I end up in the States? Yeah, yeah. Um, I married an American. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a very exciting thing to change country halfway through your life or whatever, you know. So I've learned a huge amount from it and uh, I, I've just really enjoyed the experience. And also it's made me appreciate Australia a lot better. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the really amazing things is going back to visit somewhere that you really like, you know. You don't have to live there or function there. So it's just enjoyable. It's like yeah. uh, a different kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And uh, you ended up working or being associated very strongly with uh, Titley Scientific um, previously. Uh, this was all to do with the development of uh, analog software and, and original Anabat detectors. Do you want to... Just tell us a little bit about how you managed to get yourself involved with that or how they got involved with you. Just a little bit of background. Well, ever since I was really young, I was into wildlife, right? And so I got into birds big time, later bats, um, later frogs, really, and then bats, dragonflies, other things. But the thing is, I was also into electronics from a really young age. My father was an, elect an electrical engineer. And it, sort of really rubbed off on me. 
And by the late 70s, I was really interested in seeing if I could use electronics to help me with bats. That was really, that was really became a passion because I was really wanted to be able to treat bats like I treat birds. That's really where it came from. I wanted to know what they were when they're flying around outside. And so it was an ideal uh, case for putting electronics and wildlife together. And so that's how I got into it. And when I first made a functional bat detector system, which was based in those days on a laptop, which was pretty new in itself, um, then people expressed an interest in it. So I wanted to find somebody who would actually manufacture it. So I went to David Titley, who I knew a little bit about. He was a New Zealander, lived in Australia, and made, 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 made mainly telemetry equipment, right? And so yeah. I went to him and asked him, you know, would you want to make these things? You sell them yourself, no obligations of any kind. I just want them made so people can have access to them. So that's how it started with David. He was pretty reluctant at first. <laughs> but yeah. in the end, he did pretty well out of it, I think. <laughs> okay, okay. And how long ago was that? When? Ooh, late 80s, something wow. like that. Yeah. Uh, so your, your involvement with software and bats, I, I mean, you must have been one of the forerunners to what many bat workers are accustomed to uh, using today. I mean, you must, it sounds as if, okay, maybe not there right at the very start, but there weren't that many people in the 1970s doing anything like this. Is that correct? Well, it was, as much as anything, it was just luck and sort of a coincidence of fortunate things, but you know, the mid 80s, I mean, I tried to make a bat detector in 79 or something and it didn't work well. Uh, so I, I tried later on and then by the mid 80s, all of a sudden you had the PC revolution. And that all of a sudden made it possible for me to do things which hadn't been done before using zero crossings, you know, because the technology it was a change in technology as much as anything else that suddenly uh, enabled it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's amazing, amazing. And what, what did you do in a professional life? I mean, have you, have you ever had a, <laughs> don't, don't take this the wrong way, okay? Um, but have you ever had a proper job? <laughs> <laughs> I worked for 10 years with the Department of Forestry in Queensland as a zoologist, which is, a bit odd being a zoologist in the Department of Forestry, but I really enjoyed those years and learned a great lot. I worked with some very good people and it was um, very formative from a different direction. Okay, and then, and then after that, pretty much working on your own or in collaboration with others, is, is that fair? Yeah? I don't know. I've been... <laughs> I've done a lot of bat work uh, just because uh, as a consultant in essence, you know, helping people out with, with uh, surveys and things of that nature, you know. So I've done a lot of that over the time. I've done a lot of radio telemetry. And, but mostly I've been doing acoustics just because there was a need for it. And it 
um, was something I really enjoyed. And uh, so that's what I ended up doing. And all the time, by the way, David Titley started paying me royalties, which helped a lot from the sales of the original Annabat detectors. So, you know, um, so since forestry, <laughs> I really haven't had a job of <laughs> a sort of fixed type in any sense, no. So how long did it take you to create Analook W as a working bit of software that thousands of people around the world could start using? I, I, I mean, that, that must have been years of, of time. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I'd started with a little program called Anabat which was like in the uh, late 80s, written in assembler for anybody who actually knows what that is, and, <laughs> um, and just evolved from there. But, you know, these things, uh, they, they never stop. It's not finished in any sense. It only ends when I die. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's... <laughs> you just keep building on things, you know, and, uh, and I'm still working on it. And uh, believe it or not, I put full spectrum capabilities in it these days. What? Full spectrum? Chris Corbin, well, come on. Have you heard no. that word? <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I like seeing those pictures too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about uh, yeah. maybe talk a little bit more about that later. Listen, I, I was thinking. Did, did you know? Did you know how many copies of Analog W have been downloaded? Or I mean, maybe you're not prepared to say, but it must be tens of thousands of downloads. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. I have no idea, to be quite honest. Yeah. I never kept any track. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. it was all free. So it's like, you know, just um, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, How many has... people copied copies to other people? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if, so, if, you, if you charged a tenner a time, you would probably be a multi-millionaire multi by now. But, <laughs> but uh, anyway, anyway, uh, it's good stuff. Right, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, a few other things. So the very first time we met each other uh, was, uh, it was only a couple of years ago, although I had been on a couple of your workshops uh, in the past as an audience member. Uh, but, uh, but I put these pictures up because I've got very fond memories for lots of reasons. The time uh, a group of us spent in Askham in Norway, 2018, 2017, round about then, two, three years ago now. And uh, yeah, so we've got, uh, got Life Gerd there in the back. He's the, he was the person that organized this event. And uh, I, I love this picture here of you, Chris, 
where the slide comes up with why bother in the days of auto ID. Do you want to talk a little bit about auto ID and stuff like this? Any thoughts that you might have on that? Well, sure. I mean, um, no other animal group lends itself to auto ID as much as bats do in many ways. Um, it's it's an ideal place for it, and it will always play a, play a role of some sort. And the question is, how good is it? And how good is it compared to what well-trained people can do by themselves? And even ignoring that, even ignoring the effectiveness, it still has a really big role, even if it keeps misidentifying things. Because the, the, you quickly find with bat detecting that the data load is just too great to deal with at a personal sort of level. So what our idea is here to stay and hopefully it'll keep getting better. And, uh, but it's got a long way to go. And part of the problem is uh, as the people who have to train the software don't yet have enough understanding of the bats. None of us do. It's like a lot of mysteries out there about how to deal with identification identification of bats by their echolocation calls and uh, you know it's just uh, it, it's it's just a, an evolving process and we're really still at a very early stage in this and in my view even though it's been going on for quite a while now but um, it's also evolving rapidly and partly that's been driven by technological changes that have come about um, but there's more to it than that. It just takes a long time, a long time for these uh, principles of identifying bats by their application calls to really become well-established and well-understood. And I think it's got a long way to go yet. Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I, I can't endorse that enough. And I often say to people when I do training events, they've got to remember, uh, broadly speaking, uh, echolocation. It's not like birdsong and it's, it's an acoustic tool, it's an, it's an acoustic torch and you put different bats in a similar habitat, they're going to require a similar sort of acoustic tool and you get into, in, in the UK, well in Western Europe, uh, the Myotis uh, group which is very, very problematic to be confident with an awful lot of the time. Quite sure you're right. We're going to talk about Bechstein's calls, I think, in a minute, which is going to be really interesting. I think you said to me in Askham that uh, you asked me a question in Askham, and you probably won't remember this, but it was along the lines of, uh, Neil, how many of my recorded calls would you anticipate I wouldn't do much with either because of call quality or the bat being in cluttered environment etc. Uh, do you recall that thought process? Uh, not quite but remind me. <laughs> yeah well I mean you, you kind of said to me at the time because I'd never really because my background uh, is as much consultancy as it uh, is I suppose kind of you know poor research um, in the consultancy world, 
uh, you've pretty much got to try and analyze everything that you've recorded. And I think what you were saying to me when we were talking was when it actually comes to getting calls that you can maybe do more with regarding identification for the difficult species, a very high percentage of calls you can't really do much with. You know, it's, you know, it's a bat and that's maybe as far as you can go in some instances. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? Well, you're particularly talking about the situation where you're recording passively. So you're putting a bat detector out and leaving it and there's no other input really that's useful to you to help you identify the bat. So you, you're stuck with what the, what the detector picks up. Um, and that's certainly you get a lot of awful recordings when you do this. But um, it's really the central question that needs to be asked is how much do you need to survey bats to meet the goals of your study? I mean, how much is actually required? Because a lot of the time we grossly oversample uh, at a particular point, but on the other hand, we don't adequately sample, for example, spatial variability or temporal variability. I mean, you know, if you sample a horseshoe roost for six months, nobody turns up. It doesn't actually necessarily mean it isn't important to them. You have, it's, it's a very complicated, uh, it's because bats are so mobile apart from anything else. They're really exceptionally different from other kinds of animals in general. They're really difficult issues like that. Uh, their mobility more than anything else, I think. So, you know, you get a lot of bad recordings, but you think of it this way, wherever you are, whatever circumstances, there'll always be bats that are just a little bit further away and you'll get crappy recordings of them. And this is utterly inevitable. It doesn't matter how good your equipment is or anything else, there's always going to be bats that are just out of range or just at the point where they're marginal and you just pick up bits of them. And it's, uh, it's just an ever-present issue. So the thing is really uh, to understand which types of calls are most useful, uh, helpful to you. And that evolves too. You know? It's like, like we start with certain ideas about what calls are going to be important for identifying species and then over time it evolves and you find out there are other aspects of it that are important as well that you perhaps hadn't thought of initially. Yeah, yeah, no, no absolutely. Okay, do you want, let's, let's have a, I think the next slide is, yeah, here we go. Um, uh, this is a Beckstein's call um, and uh, we've got a few, we've got a few slides here of calls that uh, Chris is going to talk to us about, ladies and gentlemen. And um, Chris, you're driving the bus, so uh, you just talk about what you're seeing and why it is what it is or why you think it is what it is. And I'll just hit the buttons. Okay? okay. So, yeah. Well, you know, this is a zero crossings display. This is what Analog produces as your way of looking at the signal. So it's you know, usual thing, frequency on the vertical axis and time in the horizontal axis. And this is compressed, so the times between the different pulses have been removed, 
The reason for doing that is that you can then look at lots of pulses at a high enough magnification for it to really tell you something. So this to me is a sort of display I always want to see of a, of a bat call. You know, it's a nice recording. There's a lot of consistency in it. And uh, it means a lot more when, when those conditions are met. Consistency, because if a bat's are in a lot of clutter, varying what they're doing all the time, makes it a lot harder to, um, to identify them in many situations, right? And also, <clears throat> I mean, Beckstein's was an interesting case because I'd been told repeatedly that their calls are extremely faint and difficult to detect. And when I actually got to record two of them in Hungary, to my complete amazement, I got some of the best recordings I'd ever <laughs> got from a hand-released Beckstein's. It was actually beautifully easy to record. And this really puzzled me a bit. But I, I think part of the act with them is that they fly relatively slowly. They don't get out of your range very quickly. Um, that's kind of my impression with it. So that you have a chance to get some really nice recordings of them. And, um, uh, so, and it's also, you know, you can't love a Becksteins with those ears. I mean, they're just a ridiculously nice little bat, you know. So, yeah, <laughs> so um, it's a it's a bat of also, you know, this sort of mystery aspect. People talk about them hunting an extreme clutter and all the rest. And, um, and yet they make calls like this when they get out in the open. Really nice, easy um detailed sort of calls beautiful yeah. okay so if, if if you had recorded this and you and it wasn't a hand released bat is there anything there that you're seeing that would be saying this is possibly a Beckstein's bat <laughs> I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far um I think the 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 I think the central thing to me is with groups like Myotis, that the individual pulses may hold a lot of clues, but they're hardly ever going to put it this way. If you had just a single pulse, could you identify a Myotis? I mean, it's, to me, it's an almost farcical idea. The, the, the thing about these bats is the sequence, the sequence as a whole. What are they doing that changes in time? Uh, what, how do they change the calls? when they do go into some clutter. Um, these are the sort of issues that really make a difference, I feel, to my Otis identification. I should warn you that I'm much more familiar with American myotis, And uh, they're not the same quite, but I think the issues are generally very similar. And after all, I, I learned from the Europeans about watching things like myotis and the importance of that. And, I completely agree with it. I mean, it's, it's like, I think a lot of the time, myotis calls of one species may be just a subset of what another species does. But yeah. that doesn't mean they're not different and it doesn't mean they can't be identified. It just uh, influences the types of uh, tasks we have to go through to get there. So- Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Right, do you mind if I pull up the next one? Um, yeah, so sure. So uh, this is uh, another Bechstein's, uh, or the same one, but a different part of the sequence. So I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, look, yeah. 
these were in Poland, you know, had quite a number of them, and it was just fantastic uh, for all the bats to be released. But I think the thing that intrigues me about this is the little subtle differences in the call shapes compared to the previous slide and uh, how it varies. And that's one of the reasons I, I like zero crossings is just because it makes it easier to see things like that. These aren't artifacts of the zero crossings process. They're actually present in a full spectrum recording um, because often you, know, you can derive one from the other or you can derive ZC from full spectrum. So, um, so it's showing you things that are real, but it's showing them in an easier way to see. So yeah. when people send me calls to look at, usually my first, um, the first thing I do is convert them to zero crossings and look at them there. And then if later on uh, it helps, uh, I can go to full spectrum views and look at what that might tell. But um, I don't really believe that it often makes a difference from the point of view of identification. It's more a sensitivity issue, you know, you can see, see uh, more, I wouldn't call it detail, but you'll get fainter calls in uh, full spectrum than you can deal with in zero crossings. But if they've got enough, if they're not too faint, and you can deal with them in zero crossings, then it's very quick and effective to do so. And you can yeah. more easily look at some of the between these slides. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna pull up another one. Uh, Bechstein's again. Um, yes, um, yeah. Yeah. different shapes again. If you put these you know, side by side, you could easily see little subtleties. What do they mean? Well, that's another whole issue. And a surprising amount of it might be social calls. I mean, social elements in the signals. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know, I know you've done, I don't want to go too deeply into it because uh, time doesn't allow, but you've got a very interesting article on your horibat.com website about what you call social echolocation in Cool's Pipistrel, I think it was. Do you want to touch very briefly on that? Well, these calls that they were making they just didn't fit the concept of a pipistrellus at all. And um, I, I went through an enormous amount of work from my own point of view when I was in Croatia at the time. And it suddenly just became really clear to me these are cools doing this. And, they're always doing it, yeah, always, I mean, these are normal Pipistrellus type calls that you're looking at here, different species. And the, the, yeah. Um, the, but the thing is that when they make these other type, call types, so here it's singing. Now, see these ones. Okay. Yeah. So in the middle of that, you've got calls coming way below the normal frequencies of Cool's Pipistrellus. Yes. And yeah. furthermore, they have this overall rather myotisy looking shape to them, which in Pipistrellus are normally associated with calls of higher frequency, yet these were of lower frequency and making these steeper um, and quite consistently, as you can see there. I've yes. watched bats that were hunting using these calls as well. They were actually would suddenly go off and chase an insect while they were making those calls. So these calls were 
for performing all the functions of echolocation calls, um, including finding prey, right? But at the same time, um, they weren't the normal common type calls that you see from this species. And always when I noticed them, though this could be a very biased viewpoint, but you know, they were always when there was a lot of seeing activity going. Okay. But, yeah. You know, it could be just that whenever I've met cools, they were busy singing. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, so I was very interested in this, and I wrote this little thing in there. But um, since then, I've found other analogues to this. Uh, Eastern red bats in North America do something uh, remarkably analogous to this. So um, I think, in, for me, the big eye-opener in a way is that I think the boundaries between social calls and echolocation calls are becoming increasingly blurry. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. You know, so uh, I don't know how much social information is put into the typical echolocation calls we see, but I think it might be a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very deliberately uh, not going to allow myself uh, to uh, talk about social calls. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? Uh, well, but uh, I suppose it's because uh, uh, that's what people would expect me to do, and, uh, and I get plenty of opportunity to uh, <laughs> to do that anyway. Oh, it was great listening to you and ask him. You know, it really made me more enthusiastic about social calls yeah, again. Yeah. You know, so. But but there are definitely, uh, although I'm I wasn't aware of the cools pipistrel uh, scenario until I saw the stuff that you'd written. I don't know if anybody was to be fair. Um, there are there are definitely examples of uh, some bats, um, long-eared bats. You know, this this really loud initially considered to be a social call that they can do. You know, is that echolocation with a social function or is it a social call with an echolocation function? Or why indeed does it have to, why can't the bat just be smart enough to say, it's half of one and half of the other? <laughs> it's a, yeah, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, there's always interesting debates about that particular subject, and um, yeah. I don't know that there is a straight answer. Yeah, it's like uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got an analogue there of one of the Beckstein's calls um, opened up, and yeah, I'm sorry, we were laughing about this earlier, but uh, I use a linear scale on my on my uh, analogue when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> Hit the E key a couple of times. <laughs> Whereas uh, Chris, everybody, and uh, he makes uh, no apologies for this. Uh, when he does his analog analysis, at least my understanding is, uh, Chris always does the thing that I tell people not to do. Okay, Chris always uses, or I think he always uses a logarithmic a logarithmic scale. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. it's like that span a wide frequency range, so. What you're doing by using a linear scale is compressing all the bottom of it, in essence. So you don't get nearly enough detail when you're dealing with nictilus if you also want to deal with horseshoe bats. I mean, that's the simple, the simple reason for a logarithmic scale is uh, you know, so beneficial. It just gives you a decent 
resolution across the whole band. Yeah, yeah. And now we are logarithmic creatures. We think logarithmically all the time. It's like people hate the word, but that's <laughs> <laughs> how brains work in every aspect. It's like <laughs> it makes no sense to be linear about these things. <laughs> Uh, do, do you want to expand slightly on that then? So what, what do you mean by we, we think logarithmically? I don't know, can you, can you, can you give us a non-bat example? I, I don't know where this is going, ladies and gentlemen, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's our perception of loudness, for example, is logarithmic. It's based on ratios, not increments. That's the fundamental difference. For example, if I said to you, this thing is... Uh, an inch larger than that. What does it tell you? Nothing. If I tell you it's 99.6% of the same size, it tells you an awful lot. You're never going to notice that difference, right? So yeah. it's, it's, it's like it's all context dependent. We fundamentally think of ratios. If we run a mile, the last foot doesn't make any difference to us. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like if we run a hundred miles, <laughs> heaven forbid, but um, then the last mile isn't going to make any difference to us fundamentally. We think in ratios, fundamentally, okay. in every aspect of our lives, really. So, <laughs> the logarithms, are, logarithms are just completely natural. <laughs> Okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm beginning to buy this. I am beginning to buy this now. Uh, um, I'm sorry to say, Chris, that probably myself and uh, certainly, you know, a handful of other people in the UK are possibly responsible for uh, most people in the UK uh, going linear when it comes to analog W. <laughs> Look, you know what the problem is fundamentally with respect yeah. to bat calls? Yeah. Is that in full spectrum, you were never able to see a logarithmic scale until quite recently. That yeah. must be a huge part of the, part of the sort of backlog of thinking, thinking yeah. that way. It's only really recently you can see um, uh, a logarithmic scale in full spectrum and it costs you, you know, it takes longer to write, to that write the screen. So, yeah. you know, that's understandable. But, you know, if you want to look at, if you want to look at uh, the lower end of the nictolus, you need a different scale. So if you're going to look at horseshoe bats. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, the idea of having to take half a second to change the scale is really intrusive and unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to waste part of your life, you know? <laughs> when you could be looking at a different bat call. Like, uh, uh, it's an awful lot about Anabat and Analook has been about making it quick to use. And yeah. it's funny the little resistances you get from people. Like, uh, for a long time, people hated the idea of having to type Anabat. Six letters. <laughs> <laughs> start the program. I just wanted to click on a link, you know. <laughs> so these things go. There's a lot of people object to having to use a keyboard at all. <laughs> oh. So you know, there's a whole lot more that goes on in the background and the way humans think. <laughs> it's just 
rather interesting. Yeah. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely loving this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely loving this uh, discussion. I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> loving this. <laughs> right. I think what we'll do is uh, we'll, we'll go back to this one, which is another Beck Steins. Uh, anything different here that you want to talk about? Um, a different call shape again. If you put them right overlapping or something, which isn't easy, um, then you would be more able to appreciate the differences. And uh, in in shape, the little subtleties in it, and, and some of them are a consequence of uh, uh, some of them are a consequence of how close the bat was to you. You know, you see more of the calls a lot of the time. On the other hand, in the some of those, you'll see it really made no difference. Now the bat wasn't staying still, right? So, so that means basically you're detecting as much of the call as you could. Um, yes, you would have seen a bit more in a full spectrum display, but basically it's telling you the same same stuff, really. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we can move on to the next one. Wow, what's this? I'm sure a lot of our <laughs> listeners will know what this is. <laughs> yeah, well, who doesn't love a horseshoe bat? You know? It's uh, yeah. like uh, Australia has one. Well, no, it actually has three, at least. <laughs> but... Um, the calls are just so different to other bats. It's, it's really wonderful. But, um, and, you know, you just love hearing them in a bat detector, that little bell going off. It's such a gorgeous sound and so instantly recognisable. <laughs> it's just uh, fantastic bats. And, of course, the, a really significant point about them is the high duty cycle. So the calls are very long compared to the gaps between the calls, which is very different from most bats. Yeah. And they have a completely different echolocation system that they use. It's, um, and we don't have any of them in the new world. Yeah, that's right. There's no, no horseshoe species in the Americas at all. But do you have species over there that do something similar echolocation-wise, or? One, really, Pteranotus parnelli makes long calls that are quite similar to this, and it has been shown that they use some of the same kind of underlying um, echolocation strategies. But okay. uh, it's, it's a bat in a completely different family, and it's, its calls are actually more complex because they end typically and a more Vespertilionid looking kind of, um, you know, more typical sort of bat call like a pipistrelle at the end of the horseshoe bat. <laughs> right. <Pulse. Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> so more complicated, but um, they're terrific. I mean, I enjoy it to them just you know, because <laughs> when you get to Pteranotus parnelli, again, they're just really obvious. You, just, you don't have to look at them, you just hear them. <laughs> Uh, and then this one here, uh, Barbastel. Uh, so this was a, a hand-released Barbastel, I think you were saying. Yeah, uh, earlier. Yeah, that's weird. Hand-released. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, again. This was in Poland. It's uh, um, we caught quite a lot of them. And uh, the, the thing about Barbastels, you know, is it's like uh, people were all excited about them. Get them in the uh, big forests and stuff like that. I've seen them flying around beaches and <laughs> hang, hanging out in the middle of Vilnius and hiding behind a metal grate in the middle of the town. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, 
And another thing that really impresses me about them is how fast they fly. They're really dynamic little bats. Uh, really, uh, I don't know. Who doesn't love a barber still? I mean, they're just incredibly, <laughs> they're just incredibly neat animals. And, uh, the calls are, have this, uh, people talk about them as having two different parts of the call, but it's very common to see one part, not the other part. Uh, yeah. But in this particular sequence, you can see it's dominated by the high, high calls at the left. Yeah. Then the, um, on the right, you see the low calls coming in, the ones that started about 35 and dropped to about 30. Yeah. Very distinctive yeah. kinds of pulses. Because this is a compressed view, they're all sort of stuck together. But if you um, looked at them in true time, they're more or less equally spaced a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, lovely, lovely sequence. So there was a couple of other things that I just wanted to, well, one thing I, I wanted to say to you. Um, a lot of us say over here that are into bat acoustics uh, follow Facebook pages such as, uh, I think it's the Bat Sound Facebook page. And the amount of time and energy and patience you put into putting explanations or examples or alternative opinions upon pages such as that, it, it's astonishing. I mean, I, I sit there as an observer and I see some of the stuff eh, that you write up there and I know hats off to you. I just don't know how you find the time to do that and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, it's my passion, you know, really. And I really love this stuff. And it's fantastic having a place where people um, talk about this subject, you know. You can't just sort of go down the street and sit in a bar and expect to meet someone talking about bad calls. <laughs> work that way. So I think it's a terrific resource and it's really... Um, I've learned a huge amount from it and I... I hope that it's seen by people mainly as somewhere to learn things. And uh, uh, I can't just answer, a, somebody puts up a call and says, what's this? <laughs> I can't just give a straight answer because it's completely uninformative to do that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But, um, uh -huh. And of course, sometimes it's uh, not even a bat, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's not even an animal. You know, it's an electronic noise or a mechanical noise or something. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, every now and then you get these things and nobody has a clue what it is. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, of course, your book uh, throws some light on some of these signals as well. And it's interesting how many, uh, how much more conversation is going on about crickets and uh, yeah. Yeah. things. You know, there's people realize there's other interesting sounds out there. It's, I'm afraid I'm a bit bit too buried in the idea of insect noises being a nuisance. <laughs> but also when I first made a bat detector and got it working, what did I track down? A garden tap that was leaking. <laughs> then it was tracking down lots of insects and it was really fun you know, to see who was making this incredible noise. Yeah. Just, uh, so I don't, I don't, um, uh, <laughs> the ultrasonic insects are fantastic and I wish I had enough lifetimes to mess with them a lot more than I do. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's. Uh, I mean, it, I mean that uh, that study there, uh, and I man, I was just scratching the surface, and of course, I was just dealing with the species in the British Isles. Yeah, um, and and I think to myself, I think I actually say something like this in the book somewhere. Um, if you went into, I don't know, a rainforest in, you know, South America or something, where there are a lot more different species of insects, nighttime mammals, uh, a lot more different species of bats, etc. It must be even more confusing when you start considering all of the stuff out there that could make ultrasonic sound that could get picked up by a bat detector. You know, just in the last... <laughs> I don't know, this century, like people have learned a whole lot more about other ultrasonic mammals, for example, flying squirrels, you know, um, little rodents. Uh, uh, way back, I had this wonderful experience of spending about 45 minutes tracking down this sound. I didn't know what it was at first. I thought maybe it's a bat social call or something, and it was this peromiscus, a mouse, sitting yeah. in a tree broadcasting. And uh, I could pick it up with a detector from 15 metres away. And this wasn't quiet. It was advertising. And it's a, this is such a wonderful experience, you know. But now there's a whole lot more known about those uh, aspects of it. And I'm sure that people having ready access to bat detectors is part of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's part of the night noise. And, if, and uh, if you're into bats, you encounter these sounds, these mice used to turn up all the time on passive detectors yeah. in uh, North America, especially in the Southwest. It's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's amazing stuff. And uh, I mean, the more, the more you find out, the more you realize that you don't really know that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we, li we live in temperate regions, you and I do anyway. <laughs> And in the tropics, it's such a, uh, a whole lot more complexity and weirdness, but it's also a lot harder to work with. You know? yeah. And often you don't find the same sort of species abundances that you do in the, in the more temperate areas. Okay. okay. So often there's yeah. more diversity, but not nearly as many um, bats to encounter in a lot of cases. Okay. Okay. A lot of them might be quiet, too, relatively quiet, so more working in clutter, and so you don't encounter them as much. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I don't, I don't have any experience at all, uh, other than being on holiday, of uh, doing any sort of uh, proper uh, bat work um, you know, in the tropics. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Listen, something, something I wanted to kind of uh, finish off upon, uh, perhaps, is I know, I know that you're a very keen ornithologist. Uh, you started, I think your first interest in wildlife was birds uh, from a very young age. Um, and I know that uh, you sometimes think about uh, bats versus birds in terms of what they're doing acoustically, etc. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Just give us some thoughts on that, perhaps? Well, I, for bat people, I think I came into this from a somewhat different angle because I was into birds, really. And so I tried to apply sort of bird principles, things that are really natural to birders, but 
Um, but people seem to have mainly come into things from a different perspective. And it's harder for people to get into actually watching animals, even though a lot of Europeans really uh, pioneered this a long, a long time ago um, with um, Arland, for example, in Sweden. Right? And the emphasis was in learning how to find roosts, for example, yeah. by, uh, uh, by following animals and uh, tracking them down to their roosts. This is a, a beautifully Europocentric <laughs> concept when you live in somewhere like Australia or North America. It's a completely different uh, situation. Because uh, it's not like uh, bats. <laughs> um, there's, there's so much space compared to what there is in Europe that makes complicates yeah. that whole issue of trying to find individual roosts but it's um it's a terrific uh it's a terrific background that the europeans had in terms of watching animals and learning about the sorts of things they do and i think there's a terrific amount more that can be done in, in this kind of way and uh, this sort of process i've i've enjoyed it greatly i really like watching animals and it's taught me a huge amount. Uh, there's nothing like using a bat detector that shows you the, the calls on the screen in combination with watching the bat. Um, that to me has been a really, uh, really important, uh, important step in it. Actually, yeah. you know, when I first, when I first was able to watch them in real time, watch the bats flying around, watch the calls on the screen. It just all fell into place a, a lot because you realize how really variable these things were. <laughs> and the, yeah. sort of, uh, yeah. the sort of variation that you had to cope with. <laughs> now I think for me, it's going in a slightly different direction in the sense that um, we need to know more about what bats typically do. Um, and myotis, I think, are a great group for that because although they tend to be acoustically annoyingly similar, but on the other hand, the ones I know best do tend to do different things. They typically okay. uh, hunt in different kinds of places. It isn't that you won't see a species hunting in the wrong place. That happens all the time, you know. You just need a mayfly hatch and you see them going nuts. It's, I completely change the behavior, but I think it's more about what they usually do. It's, it's uh, really the key to it a lot of the time. It's not the yeah. individual pulse or even the in individual file. It's what you see over a, a night is often far more informative in my view. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really f fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, one of the- Yeah, go for it. Well, one of the points is that people in the bat world generally, I don't, I think they're intimidated by the idea of watching bats. Um, and it, it's hard. I don't, I don't dispute that for one instant, but there are lots of things that can be meaningful and helpful to you that are actually really simple. If you look at, if you sit out in an evening and have Liza's bats and serotines flying around, it's not hard to see the differences between them in shape and flight style. Things. These sorts of things come naturally to birders. 
but they're not as easy for bat people to get into. But if they made the step, I think they'd find it uh, a lot, very helpful and a lot more, uh, a lot easier than it appears at first. Yeah, because I'm in an ornithology world and uh, like yourself, I started off as a, as a birder uh, from about the age of uh, eight. I think I was, I think you were slightly ahead of me there, but uh, but they talk about jizz, um, which is kind of general impression, size and shape. And that's all about what you're seeing visually. You know, and, and it's, and sometimes you just, you, you look at a bird at a distance and you know what it is, but it's very difficult to explain why you know what it is, but it's just experience and just the general impression, size and shape, you know, back to that again. That's just allowing you to come to that conclusion. Yeah. Um, one of the things you learn as a bird watcher is when you go to an unfamiliar place, you tend to make mistakes because yeah. there are other aspects of your surroundings that are no longer so familiar to you. Yeah, really, absolutely. Really subtle yeah. things, maybe, but you know, it's just uh, when bat watching, you go to a different place and often you find the same species is making different calls. Yes. Well, yeah. It's not because it's a different species or anything like that, not most of the time anyway. It's because they're hunting a different kind of food here, so they're doing something different and it reflects in the types of calls they produce. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Chris, I think we're going to draw things towards a close. Yeah, is there anything else you want to talk about, Chris, before I close things off? Um, well, probably no mentioned enough. I just love it. Look. There's one thing that is just really fantastic is to be able to take a bat detector out and actually know what the bats are. That's where I started, wanting to do that. And most of the time it works really well, you know, once you're familiar with a place, that's a big part of it. You need to know where the different bats tend to hang out and stuff, but you know, it's part of just uh, being, being amongst them and, and getting to know them well. So. That's a great thing. It's a terrific thing to be able to go out and point to a bat and say, I know what that is. That's a big brown bat, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And about walkabout you've got there, is that, is that your main detector of choice these days? Is that what you're still using? It's the one I most often use, yeah. 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 For, for active work, right? Yeah. But um, I also think that the, the general principle of diversity applies here. If you use an active detector, but don't use passive, you're missing a lot. If you use passives and don't use active, you're missing a lot. You know? yeah. If you use full spectrum and don't use zero crossings, you're missing a lot. It's like, like it's a whole combination of things that, uh, that uh, work together to give you as much of a picture as you can get. Brilliant, absolutely love that, love that. Okay, Chris, so uh, Chris, Thank you so, so much for uh, talking back uh, with, uh, with me today. Um, you know, when, uh, when you answered the email I sent five, six weeks ago saying that you were up for this, I was uh, totally chuffed to bits. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's, uh, this is part of what I, uh, you know, people, people often ask me, you know, Neil, what do you love about your job? And uh, and just talking, you know, to the likes of yourself, uh, these are kind of highlights for me. So uh, I'm hoping that the people that listen to this are uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure, I know that they will, uh, you'll have given them a lot to think about here. And uh, so thank you for that, Chris. Uh, it's been thank a you, Neil. Um, well, it was great seeing you at Askham a couple of years ago, and I, I was sort of hoping, hoping to get to Finland this year. And uh, yeah. maybe see you again. hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Batability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to batability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.